0: Welcome to UCD ScholarCast, I'm PJ Matthews. The following extract in the series Scholars Off the Page will be given by Diane Negra, Professor of Film Studies and Screen Culture at University College Dublin. after Katrina. Old and new media after Katrina considers the media textuality of Hurricane Katrina, an event that signifies the radical eruption of incidents and images decisively outside the bounds of what is conceived as the American way of life. In its aftermath, we can glimpse the ways in which citizenship, consumerism, and charity come together in new formulations often in attempts to reinforce state-sponsored Christian sanctimony, the stigmatization of the poor, and the need to negotiate white middle-class guilt in such a way that national identity myths remain unthreatened. For many, Hurricane Katrina manifested not only a profoundly unequal national culture and the rupture of the social contract, it also seemed to lay bare the normalization of risk in American life. Representations of Hurricane Katrina cannot be read outside of a neoliberal context marked by new economy market fundamentalism, state-supported assaults on the environment, intense anti-immigration rhetoric in a nation still celebrating itself as a global beacon of hope for the downtrodden, the withering role of state care for the vulnerable, and various other perversions of democracy that have flourished in recent years. Hurricane Katrina is positioned at the intersection of numerous early 21st century crisis narratives, centralizing contemporary uncertainties about race, class, region, government, and public safety. Nancy Tuana has observed that a city is a complex material-semiotic interaction, and New Orleans rests at the heart of multiple interactions. In the context of the history of U.S. imperialism, New Orleans may be seen to have functioned as an internal colonial locale, where the tensions of slavery, environmental exploitation, and economic exhaustion suffused urban identity well prior to Hurricane Katrina. The city has long maintained a distinctive status within the national imaginary, its Old South qualities enriched and particularized by Cajun and Creole influences that have been interpreted as local spice or in reference to the supernatural. Many of its contemporary Hollywood film representations draw upon and further such perceptions, often featuring intense transgressive eroticism. And I have in mind here films like Obsession, Angel Heart, Wild at Heart, Interview with the Vampire, or The Romanticization of Corruption. In a film such as The Big Easy, the local population is paradoxically represented as both criminal and compliant. Outside of a grisly murder scene, an unruly mob of local citizens gathers, but their political concerns quickly dissipate in the face of an opportunity for recreation. The riot has turned into a party, a fellow cop tells police detective Remy McSwain, who responds, I love this town. Once we understand such representations as emerging from the need to manage colonial and imperial histories, we can more fully track the ambivalences at play in New Orleans' frequent depiction as resolutely perversely local in an era of globalized connectivity. Prior to Katrina, New Orleans maintained a singular status within an economy of carefully marketed lifestyle and tourism destinations. More than most cities, it sustained an urban brand conceptualized from the perspective of the non-resident and divorced from the daily experiences of average citizens. Once primarily seen as a place where European-American cultural affinities lived on and a Caribbeanized site of flamboyance, multiculturalism, and multiracialism, New Orleans was understood by many as a city whose economically anachronistic status was barely compensated for by tourism. The city's historical and contemporary associations with gambling also dovetail with new narratives of risk as a feature of the national condition. Geographical vulnerability, but equally important, racial, class, and financial vulnerability constituted a key disclosure of the events of 2005. Moreover, Hurricane Katrina reverberates in a culture where so many everyday encounters are now tinged with risk, terror, anger, and competition, The increasingly authoritarian and majoritarian American emotional and financial culture, as well as the possibility of alternatives to it, could be starkly glimpsed in popular debates about whether New Orleans deserves to recover and whether its displaced population can be said to have the right of return. The inability to perceive issues of disability and ill health as constitutive elements of the vulnerability of many of those impacted by Katrina can be understood in part as a consequence of the live strong or die mindset of health triumphalism that has flourished in America in recent years, underwriting deeply classist pathways of access to medical care. In the early 21st century, the narrative of dead, dying, or injured cities is sometimes counterbalanced by the spectacle of civic rejuvenation, philanthropy, and volunteerism, nearly always on terms that accord with dominant ideological keynotes and gender, race, and class hierarchies. But the effort of rebuilding itself is open to commodification, as may be seen in an entry in the long-running, high-profile advertising campaign for flavored absolute vodkas. Absolute New Orleans features a clogged highway lane going into the city with a superdome in the background. In such a way, urban rejuvenation is fused with local spice and the promotion of a new absolute product, a mango and black pepper vodka. In a study of consumerism and kish in relation to 9-11 and the Oklahoma City bombing, Marita Sturkin has persuasively argued that contemporary American culture processes traumatic episodes of violence through the tourism of history. Effectively, souvenirs and trinkets, reenactment practices, museum displays, and a consumerist popular culture steer the meaning of such events in patriotically sentimentalized and ideologically neutralized directions. While Sturkin's arguments are surely applicable in many ways to the commodification of disaster in New Orleans, they also need to be recast in this context, given that the unifying rhetoric of homeland upon which such consumer memorialization depends— proved dramatically inapplicable to an event in which a majority of citizens found the government to be at fault. Among the other deeply destabilizing effects of Katrina, as Carol Stabil has noted, was the witnessing by many citizens, for the first time in decades, the effects of racism and economic despair exacerbated by the undermining of public infrastructures in the United States. For such fewer citizens, evidence of the government's abandonment of New Orleans threatened to overwhelm their sense of self and place. Stabile's apt observation underscores the vital importance of spectatorship, not only in the context of what became a mediathon of television coverage in September 2005, but in the numerous ways in which Katrina's legacy appears in a range of other media forms, for Hurricane Katrina remains a cultural event strikingly difficult to access, independent of its media representations. As Eric Mayer has observed, to put the National Hurricane Katrina experience in perspective, fewer than several hundred thousand people witnessed the storm in person. For the other 99.8% of Americans, the disaster was a media experience with lasting implications for the public opinion and action. This collection of essays explores the relationship between Hurricane Katrina and a range of media forms. Assessing how mainstream and independent media have responded, sometimes innovatively, sometimes conservatively, to the political and social ruptures Katrina has come to represent. Strikingly, some media coverage in the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Katrina neglected to adhere to established protocols and conventions. In certain instances, this material challenged assumptions about the malfeasance of those in poverty and of an always-already criminal blackness. Some of the most dramatic evidence of such coverage could be seen on heavily conservative Fox News, where anomalies occasionally began to crop up in the rote call and response systems between news studios and on-site personnel. Instead of validating a view of the situation shaped in the studio and according to ideological prescription, reporters such as Fox's Shepard Smith refuted Anchor's attempts to recuperate events on the ground or to validate blatantly inadequate efforts at care provision for those impacted in New Orleans. Musician Kanye West's dramatic off-script moment during a September 2, 2005 broadcast of the Benefit, A Concert for Hurricane Relief, where West protested the racial disparity between black citizens accounted as looters, and white ones deemed supply gatherers and bluntly asserted that George Bush doesn't care about black people, furthered public awareness that in the period after Katrina, descending voices were making their way into the media mainstream. Such moments of unruly subjectivity were not frequent, but they tended to harden in public memory and conveyed an ideologically contestatory mood and tone. It is the argument of this book that after an initial frenzy of media coverage, efforts to impose conservative representational discipline over an event deemed ideologically problematic have played out over a sustained period of time. Emblematic of succeeding efforts to impose social and representational order in a fast-changing environment was a broadcast of the reality crime series America's Most Wanted on September 10, 2005. Situating its longtime host John Walsh in New Orleans, the episode opened with a stark assertion of its own relevance. Our 19th season on the air kicks off with one of our biggest jobs, our mission to find the missing. Despite such rhetoric, close examination of the episode reveals that this mission is decidedly minimized in favor of the show's stock gambit of criminal apprehension. The broadcast insistently advocates on behalf of police, military, and rescue agencies, acknowledging neglect and disorder only to the minimum extent necessary, and extolling that there are stories of lawlessness and sin that erupted after the storm passed, but the bigger story is that compassion and kindness flowed like the Mississippi River. The inappropriateness of such watery metaphors did not apparently register with series producers. While using short segments of the show's national broadcast platform to allow separated family members to announce their locations on air, the primary mandate of the special Gulf Coast recovery episode is to stage criminal detection as social recovery. Accordingly, the broadcast included a lengthy appeal to apprehend criminals who posed as building contractors in post-Hurricane Andrew, Florida, a profile of Mississippi police officers whose homes were flooded, introductions of police officers from other parts of the country who traveled to the Gulf region to help, and the exhortation to help find two prison inmates who escaped incarceration after the storm. As Walsh puts it, while the Mississippi police are helping their towns recover from the hurricane, you can help them by keeping an eye out for a few of their most wanted fugitives. Eric Mayer has observed that despite the frenetic coverage accorded to it early on, post-Katrina New Orleans was a site which seemed to defy and elude the available means of media representation. And I would argue that this unrepresentability produced a kind of unfinished agenda that lingered after the intense, immediate first phase of media coverage came to an end. It is this unfinished business that generates a particular representational urgency around Katrina and that a variety of media forms have subsequently addressed in the past five years. A chief goal of these essays is to consider the ways in which Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath have and have not precipitated revision of the narrative and ideological codes of popular film and television. Do cataclysmic national events exert narrative pressure on even the most stable genres? Are certain film and television forms subject to change and contestation when representing the disaster? Or have standard codes and conventions proven resilient enough to evade modification in the face of the ideological cultural exposure Hurricane Katrina has come to represent? While some contributors to this book find that a post Katrina representational environment gives rise to programming innovations, as Andrew Goodridge argues of the cluster of Discovery Channel survivalist nature reality hybrid series, including Survivor Man, Man vs. Wild, and I Shouldn't Be Alive, all of which came to television in the immediate aftermath of Katrina. Others assess textual forms as varied as the romantic comedy or the national public radio broadcast that seem to cling doggedly to their established formulae, even as the revelations of Katrina make many of their ideological precepts untenable. A strong tendency in media representations related to Hurricane Katrina is the ascription of blame and even moral deficiency to the residents of New Orleans, rather than to government agencies or corporate interests, as Lindsay Steenberg shows in her discussion of the frequently punitive treatment accorded to Katrina-impacted guest characters on primetime TV. Another common approach is to hype individual rejuvenation as a substitute for civic rejuvenation. A consistent device to effect this substitution is the personal or home makeover. In her essay, Brenda Weber considers the relationships in place between the Katrina legacy and the makeover as a primary televisual mode of the early 2000s. As the foregoing examples suggest, the specific texts analyzed by the contributors to this book roam widely across forms and genres. Case studies will traverse a range of texts from chick flicks like Last Holiday, documentaries such as When the Levees Broke and Trouble the Water, and Katrina-themed episodes of primetime television series such as House, Bones, and Law and & Order: SVU, to the landscape of cable news and the making of news personalities like CNN's Anderson Cooper, for whom Katrina was a professional boon, perhaps the only high-profile white male public figure of whom this could be said and disaster-themed programming on outlets like the National Geographic and Weather Channels. Although they do not come in for specific examination in this book, it is worth noting the emergence of a cluster of post-Katrina, Louisiana-set horror films, including Hatchet and The Reaping, which seemed to process the horrors of 2005 in displaced form, and the appearance of film and TV series that conceptualized New Orleans as a site for communal and personal campaigns for justice and crime-solving, notably Deja Vu and the Fox drama Kayville. In general, media texts that have straightforwardly sought to adapt 9-11-style discourses of heroic law and orderism to a post-Katrina context have failed to muster critical approval or to stir audience interest. This is proven true for television series like k which sought, with the cooperation of the New Orleans Police Department, to celebrate fictional New Orleans police officers, and for films like Deja Vu, which crudely and desperately spins a terrorist plot to impose the agenda of homeland security in New Orleans, opening with a spectacular sequence in which a ferry carrying hundreds of Navy personnel and their families and sailing under a banner that reads Katrina only made us stronger is bombed on Fat Tuesday. One of the earliest post-Katrina films with a New Orleans setting, Déjà Vu alides the realities of hurricane devastation by redesignating New Orleans as an investigative homeland space. By contrast, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, about a police officer and former Katrina hero who becomes decadently corrupt, was generally positively critically assessed and pronounced a significant creative achievement for its star Nicolas Cage. The proximity between Hurricane Katrina, the Indian Ocean tsunami of December 2004, and the commercial success of Davis Guggenheim's acclaimed documentary, An Inconvenient Truth in 2006, moved public awareness of environmental disaster into the cultural foreground, and arguably intensified a pre-existing cultural posture normalizing the permanency of disaster. One issue under examination in this book is how Katrina-related media at times adhere to and at times disrupt the tradition of Hollywood films, including examples such as Dante's Peak, Deep Impact, War of the Worlds, and 2012, that take disaster as an opportunity to reconstitute the family. Media responses to Katrina are more generically dispersed and thematically oblique than has been recognized. In this context, it is crucial to understand Katrina as a media event whose meanings have been consistently fostered and furthered through the Internet. Bearing in mind the important part played by the Internet to virtually reassemble decimated communities, friends, and peer groups after the storm, there is also considerable attention paid in this book to new media and the disparate textual material articulating the significance of the hurricane. Katrina-related YouTube content includes dramatic survivor videos, such as those uploaded by the Guerra and Vacarella families, memorials, survivor testimonials such as the truth about Hurricane Katrina urban video tours of decimated neighborhoods, and political calls to action. In this way, the site launched just two months before the devastation of New Orleans has come to serve as an accidental cultural archive, and potentially as an enabler of encounters with cultural differences and the development of political listening across belief systems and identities. In his essay for this volume, Jeff Schiebel turns to a set of more diffuse and less direct iterations, analyzing Katrina's online presence as a means of better delineating the time and space associated with it. Although it is not focused on in a sustained way in this book, it is important to acknowledge the scope and influence of a Katrina-influenced material culture. In this context, we might consider, for example, the early flexibility of merchandising protocols in New Orleans's French Quarter that would seem to indicate that even vast civic trauma can be rapidly commodified. T-shirts on sale in 2006 in the quarter with such slogans as N.O.P.D., Not Our Problem, Dude!, and I survived Hurricane Katrina, and all I got was this lousy t-shirt and a plasma TV and a DVD player, etc., etc., Indicate something of the way that subjects such as police abandonment and looting can be transformed, though not without ambivalence, into commercial humor. More recently, fleur-de-lis t-shirts and those reading Be a New Orleanian Wherever You Are and Mayer-Nagin keychains, such as the kind discussed in this book by Maria Promaggiori, indicate the ongoing scope of Katrina-related material culture and merchandising. In his essay, Dan Striebel documents the case of murdered filmmaker Helen Hill, whose creative work was materially damaged by the flooding in 2005. Through Striebel's account, we gain a closer view of the activities of film restoration, the contours of an activist life, and the ways in which New Orleans has so often operated as a cultural host for off-the-grid creative activities. A significant strand interweaving among the essays in this book involves analysis of the role of media, not only in organizing public memory of Katrina, but in shaping and directing affective responses to it. For example, in her essay Maria Promajori examines the ways that the reflexive anniversarizing of Katrina on media outlets such as national public radio has helped to shape emotional responses to the disaster, privileging sentimentality and recollection over introspection or analysis. A consistent element in the essays that comprise this collection is the recognition that while Katrina represented an anomalous event in some respects, it has generally been made to conform very heavily to pre-existing and ongoing narrative and ideological patterns. Its media presentation, for instance, adheres to an increasingly consistent U.S. regionalization of value and morality. These sorts of dynamics are evident in the contemporary disaster film, which, from Independence Day to Cloverfield, has proven itself deeply invested in staging the loss of certain cities in the process of defending, reclaiming the nation. Such cities are often dubbed collateral damage of a kind, in a U.S. that must contend against new and unprecedented threats. The broader habit of differentiating which national zones are economically, ideologically vital, and which are quiescent, begs the question of what kinds of ruin we are recognizing in the destruction of New Orleans. It further invites analysis of whether and how the ruining of cities is emerging as a premier 21st century American scenario of fear and fantasy. In the 20th century, the U.S. accumulated little historical experience of rebuilding after large-scale destruction. It did, however, gain considerable experience of repressing the unmaking of such American cities as Detroit, Newark, Providence, and Baltimore, all of which saw local economies and industries dwindle away. Given the cultural proclivity in the U.S. to trade in competitive strength-weakness dialectics, it is not surprising the strong impulse is to expel faltering cities as damaged parts of the national body. A boomtown logic helps to compensate for these losses, as Americans are urged to migrate to new urban centers where prospects seem bright. In the last 20 years, dramas of competitive regionalism have tended to celebrate particular cities or regions as magnet sites. Seattle, Austin, and Las Vegas, among others, have consistently come in for this sort of mythologizing treatment. With formulations such as these in place, the economic deterioration of some cities and regions is eclipsed by the celebration of chic, new urban lifestyle centers. In an era of habitual state underfunding and competitive regionalism, Katrina as a cultural event exposes an intensely hierarchical, disaggregated notion of national identity. In the drama of expendability that has frequently been staged around New Orleans since 2005, we can see the consolidation and amplification of elements that were already in place prior to Katrina. A once prosperous and thriving city, New Orleans had entered a period of long decline and was widely understood to be economically obsolescent, even as other Sunbelt cities like Atlanta, Charlotte, and Las Vegas thrived and expanded. Commercial activity outside the city's central business district was sluggish, and New Orleans experienced little of the gentrification Neil Smith has identified as crucial to the branding of 21st century urban milieu. Even as the U.S. economy surged in the late 1990s and early 2000s, New Orleans was figured in many respects as an anomalous space, a socially and financially decrepit city that had been left behind in the rush toward hypercapitalist development and financial speculation. In such accounts, New Orleans is understood as the site of a culture that is unable, unwilling to change, or to change in the right ways. This rhetoric of left-behindness is apparent, for instance, in Richard Florida's account of the regionalization of class and creativity, in which he designates New Orleans as one of several regions being bypassed in the shift to the creative economy. Cities such as Buffalo, Grand Rapids, Greensboro, and New Orleans, Florida maintains, are being left almost totally behind in this process. Hurricane Katrina, I suggest, is significant for its uncanny enactment of the left-behind trope, a trope that emerges largely out of a high-profile series of Christian novels and films, but which can be more usefully repurposed to conceptualize the social and material consequences of radical inequality in early 21st century America. What I'm arguing here is that Katrina lays bare a set of necropolitical relations, that is to say, relations between the power of the state and the power over life and death at work in the 21st century United States. Katrina Tech's work to suppress or activate those relations, sometimes in unexpected ways. Further traces of the association between Hurricane Katrina, social abandonment, and contemporary necropolitics can be glimpsed in Left 4 Dead 2, the cooperative first-person shooter game launched for Microsoft Windows and Xbox in November 2009 in which the zombie-killing fight for survival after an apocalyptic pandemic culminates in New Orleans. Left-behindness, as it was broadly constituted in American economic and social discourses of the early millennium, is, of course, fully implicated with neoliberal self-reliance. Such rhetorical ideological systems maintain absolute adherence to a national narrative of ongoing progress in which citizens are imagined as simply choosing to take part or not. National disapproval of New Orleans post-Katrina has consistently caricatured its do-nothing citizens, relying upon neoliberal discourses of self-sufficiency and studious avoidance of structural features that produce social vulnerability. Andrew Ryetsky has aptly noted the absence of a vigorous discussion in the mass media on the possibility and desirability of rebuilding New Orleans and protecting it from future flooding. In Royetsky's comparative study of print and media responses to the Great Flood of 1927 and to Katrina, he finds that one of the most striking features of the news coverage of Katrina was a distinct lack of a sense of national common cause with those impacted. In addition to a them-not-us formulation, the contemporary event, moreover, was often discursively linked to fatalism, religion, and scientific superficiality. The cultural event of Katrina in many ways confounded positive spin, laying bare a national culture enthralled to socially destructive forms of capitalism that privatized gains and socialized losses. Several years on now, public opinion seems, if anything, to have hardened against New Orleans. Its politicians and its population are frequently characterized using the now familiar rhetoric of the political right, which rewrites social and economic vulnerability as a failure of citizenship. Indeed, one of the most striking features of Katrina-related public discourse is the consistent expression of condemnation, umbrage, and distaste toward storm victims. Posted comments on follow-up news coverage, which often express deep hostility toward the residents of New Orleans, seemingly give credence to Barbara Ehrenreich's notion of an empathy deficit in contemporary U.S. culture. For Ehrenreich, a cultural climate stressing the social obligation to display positive thinking belies a deep and widespread sense of helplessness in American life. The emphatically negative assessments so conspicuous in post-Katrina rhetoric also trade in part on the remnants of a very old idea that would seem to be intrinsic to American logics of capital, the concept of creative destruction, in which, as Kevin Rosario has pointed out, Disasters are framed as events that transform space in ways that promote economic expansion and present some investors and businesses with opportunities for the accumulation of capital. As Rosario contends, the combination of Puritan dogma, nation-building ideologies, and unfettered capitalism helped to produce an American tendency, evident as early as 1727 in responses to a New England earthquake, to interpret disaster in opportunistic ways. Yet by the early 21st century, this interpretive rubric had substantially broken down. When Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans, the gaping hole in the landscape of lower Manhattan that had come to be known as Ground Zero was still starkly apparent. Writing prior to 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina, Rosario would observe that at the dawn of the 21st century, old optimisms about the benefits of disaster are finally wearing thin. Even so, faint traces of a centuries-old American expectation that calamities could be beneficial may play a part in the censure of New Orleans citizens after the levees broke. This sort of thinking is also apparent in a film like Last Holiday, a Queen Latifah star vehicle, which, as I discuss in this volume, anchors a fantasy of entrepreneurial success in an economically purified post-Katrina New Orleans. Many of the essays in this collection examine the ways that fiction and nonfiction media forms conceptualize and challenge a view of those impacted by the storm as deviant or deficient citizens, members of a left behind remnant public. Toward this end, virtually all of the contributors engage with neoliberalism as a key explanatory framework for the representational practices associated with Katrina. This does not mean that they all reach the same conclusions. And while some see the media genres or forms they assess fitting within that framework, in other cases they are deemed to exceed or resist it. It is in this context, for instance, that Jane Elliot examines paradoxical representations of self-preservation in two documentary films and an episode of TV medical drama, House. This collection examines, then, the ways that Katrina was experienced by so many in mediated form, as well as the afterlife of the storm and its locales in media imagery it undertakes such analysis at a time when press accounts are hyping Louisiana's accumulating track record as a site of media production, with a record number of films and TV series being filmed statewide, in part due to a set of tax incentives first established in 2002, and Louisiana seemingly a particular point of attraction for TV auteurs like David Simon, currently in production on Treme and Alan Ball. The expansion of media production has been extolled as a silver lining to the catastrophe of the storm and as a form of potential economic salvation in the region. Yet even as a growing number of productions bid for local verisimilitude, many carefully, even elaborately, negotiate the traumatic residue of the storm. HBO's Louisiana set, though only partly Louisiana-filmed, True Blood, makes a brief reference to Katrina in its pilot, but its setting in small-town Balton is officially untouched by the storm. In its cursory engagement with Katrina and Banton locale, True Blood generates the fantasy that the hurricane represented a one-time interruption of the status quo, with minimal impact on white hegemony and traditionalist communities. Through its Banton setting, moreover, the series references the promise of ongoing leisure, And an uninterrupted way of life in the slogan long associated with New Orleans, Laissez les bons temps rouler. Its first season episodic development playing out in a world free of impact from Katrina, True Blood prefers to trade in well established conventions associating the Deep South with Gothic tinged horror. Yet its intensely romantic localism diverts attention away from a contemporary intensification of regional inequalities, demonstrable in such things as the widening regional gaps in mortality rates, and is linked to a pattern of historical detours that seems to be accumulating in post-Katrina media. Disney's animated feature, The Princess and the Frog, which I discuss at greater length in this volume, for instance, finds it convenient to construct New Orleans as Jazz Age Phantasmagoria. Its old New Orleans setting bespeaks a tendency to evade a problematic contemporary urban locale by foregrounding romantic history in the form of an African-American princess, jazz-playing alligator, and voodoo priestess' fairy godmother. The film's impulse to stage a compensatory dreamland that substitutes Old South cliches for present-day realities culminates in the trailer's audacious last dialogue line, dreams do come true in New Orleans. This is not to suggest that all recent New Orleans-set media texts are so historically and ideologically evasive. In the Academy Award-nominated The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, an F. Scott Fitzgerald short story is distinctively adapted to acknowledge the Katrina context. The film celebrates pre-Katrina New Orleans as a site where human strength and emotional tranquility are connected to coastal culture, and as a city culturally receptive to the curious, construed in this film as counter-hegemonic experiences of temporality, linearity, and history. In this sense, and despite its adherence to a problematic limited racial economy in which such experiences of civic richness are available only to white characters that limits its ideological authority and narrative effectiveness, the film stands out, among post-Katrina media texts for its humane vision. Old and New Media after Katrina considers media discourse about citizenship in the wake of the storm particularly the ongoing effort of mainstream U.S. media to sort citizens into victims, criminals, and heroes. Where 9-11 speedily and durably installed a set of themes and archetypes of cultural heroism that helped to inscribe a narrative of worthy self-sacrifice and barbaric terrorism, the events associated with Katrina, although they did indeed generate a range of heroic actions, did not lead to the lionization of particular individuals or groups. Explanations for this are surely rooted in, if not limited to, the fact that in the latter instance, those most conspicuously impacted were the black urban poor rather than white professionals. As a number of critics have observed, 9-11 coverage tended to prefer suburban breadwinners and an intensely revalorized class of white male firefighters and police officers, in many cases conferring upon them the status of martyrs. It is perhaps also noteworthy that most 9-11 victims were killed while at work or going to it, while Katrina victims died in the homes they were perceived to have fully chosen to stay in. In this way, 9-11 victims were emphatically linked to the idealized daily rhythms of American capitalism and seats of financial and governmental power, while Katrina victims were presented in compliance with a set of pre-existing stereotypes about the idle urban poor in a city where black gangsterism was understood to thrive. In many respects, then, Katrina can be seen as an event that punctured 9-11 mythologies and unraveled many of its associated certitudes. Old and New Media After Katrina is finally a book about loss, at personal, civic, and national levels. Among other things, it takes part in a cultural and academic trend toward the study of disaster, and often its heavily mediated character. Such study is increasingly recognized as central to the thoughtful experience of citizenship in the early 21st century. While a growing body of scholarship addressing Hurricane Katrina and its social outcomes has emerged from disciplines such as sociology, urban studies, and cultural studies in recent years, most academic studies at this point note the mass-mediated character of this cultural event without really analyzing it. As illustrated by the summer 2008 mediathon hyping anxious anticipation for Hurricane Gustav, in which several New Orleans area levees were overtopped but none were breached, the need for symbolic eradication of Katrina traumas persists, and the legacy of the 2005 events is still very much with us politically, economically, socially, and ideologically. This collection seeks to provide a timely and intellectually fruitful assessment of the complex ways in which media forms and national events are currently entangled and to address readers interested in, provoked by, and concerned about the culture of media spectacle, the bifurcation of wealth and social health in America, and the parlous status of early 21st century American democracy. You've been listening to Professor Diane Negra in this UCD ScholarCast. A transcript of this extract can be downloaded at www.ucd.ie forward slash ScholarCast.